Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners. And we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. Welcome to Ivy League Murders. This week, we have Simon Botts, the author of The Girl on the Velvet Swing, Sex, Murder, and Madness at the Dawn of the 20th Century. Simon Botts is a critically acclaimed writer, author of several books, and a professor of history at John Jay College. Simon, we are so honored to have you on Ivy League Murders. So I'm curious, as a Brit, what got you interested in American history with a particular lens on criminal cases? Well, that's a long story. (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't have, we were reading about your background and then you seem to be so focused on New York. So we kind of had to ask where the focus on New York came. Well, like I said, it's a long story, but to give you the condensed version, I basically wanted to do a PhD in the history of science. And the best place to do that was the University of Pennsylvania. So it came from England to study at Penn. And of course, what happened was that I knew nothing about the United States before I came. I didn't even know anyone who had been to the United States. But basically, all the graduate courses were in the history of American science, history of American technology. And I had to do also general United States history courses. And and so it became kind of inevitable that I would do my dissertation in an American subject and that I would become much more adept at American history rather than British history or European history. And so that was like setting me on the path. Now, your question would probably be, well, how did you move from the history of science to legal history? And that also is interesting because um, the way it works is you look for an interesting topic, a topic that people want to read about. And I was in England and in London, and I had an afternoon, spare afternoon, and a movie theater close by where I was. And it was showing the film Rope, which is an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And that's based on the Leopold and Loeb case. And after I saw the movie, I became interested in the case. And what I discovered was that there had only ever been one book written about it, and that was something like 40 years ago. And what's interesting about the case is that the case is all based on the history of science. The defense admitted guilt right from the very beginning, and so there was no trial. And it was basically a hearing. The defense attorney, Clarence Darrow, came into court and said, Your Honor, my my clients are 
are psychologically have been harmed by their childhood and he introduces Freudian psychiatry into the courtroom and so each side has its set of psychiatrists and nothing else is discussed in the whole hearing except the science of these two boys and so it was a perfect subject for doing legal history and the history of science and that really got me diverted onto the path of legal history and then after that book was published, I looked around for another topic. I was living in New York City at the time. I'm still living in New York, of course. And one of the advantages about choosing a topic that's in your hometown is that you don't then have to travel. Right. You don't have to spend a lot of time going to archives in some other city. And so I looked and I found this story of the murder of Stanford White, which again, had not really been treated before in a very systematic way by a historian, by a trained historian. And so that's how I went along that path to end up doing this story about New York City. In this particular story, it's a real sort of layered cake of a crime story, <laughs> is how I would kind of describe it. Even after so much time, this is a story that continues to intrigue us. And your book reads like a novel because it's so rich in historical detail. For our listeners who are not as familiar with this story, can you place us in this period of time in New York City? Yes. Um, it's 1906. The great thing about the story is that you have these characters who are really prominent in New York society at the time. Number one is Stanford White, who is this really celebrity architect who is responsible for so many buildings in New York City. And his firm, McKim Mead and White, was prominent everywhere. I mean, they designed, the firm designed uh, the original Pennsylvania station. They designed the campus of Columbia University. They designed the NYU campus when that was up in the Bronx. And all over New York City still, there are just these wonderful buildings that that firm left behind. And Stanford White designed Madison Square Garden when it was down on 25th and Madison Avenue, right by Madison Square. And that was a wonderful building. I think anyone who knows anything about the history of New York has this sense of regret that so many beautiful yeah. buildings have been torn down. And Madison Square Garden had to be one of the most beautiful buildings in the history of the city. So Stanford White is this man who knows everybody. He's very gregarious, very sociable. And he has a, a house on 24th Street that he rents. He has an apartment in the tower of Madison Square Garden, and he lives on an estate on Long Island where he goes during the weekends uh, to his wife and son. So he's the first character. The second character is really a very young girl, 16 years old, who's a chorus girl in the production of the musical comedy Floridora, which was incredibly successful. It ran for about two years in London and then moved to New York City, where it was equally successful. And then the third character is Harry Thor, who's this millionaire playboy, 31 years old. He gets an allowance from his mother every year of $80,000. Now, this is an enormous amount of money in, back in 1906. And of course, there are no federal taxes and there's very, very little state taxes. So it's essentially, you're talking about maybe $80,000 in our terms is perhaps a million dollars tax-free. So he had as much money as he possibly wanted. 
And the great thing about this is that this is really a story about the elite of New York City, about the middle class, the upper class, and, and how they work. And when I write about a murder, I mean, of course, the thing about a murder is it takes a very short amount of time. And that's really not the most interesting aspect of the story. The interesting aspect of the story is, number one, the position of Stanford White in New York society. And number two, the repercussions of the murder. I mean, how did this play out in the press? It was sensational. Every newspaper really covered it in enormous detail. I mean, you had literally pages and pages of each newspaper devoted to reprinting the verbatim testimony of the witnesses in the courtroom. And of course, the other thing you've got to remember is that there were 14 daily newspapers in New York City at the time. And all of these newspapers were very full. I mean, they weren't like the New York Post is now, which is really just very skimpy coverage. They were just devoting pages and pages, and there was great competition among all these newspapers. So they assigned reporters to this case. It just got enormous publicity. And and that's part of the great attraction of a story like this, that if you have a lot of newspaper coverage, then the sources are very rich and very full. So tell us a little bit about Evelyn Nesbitt, and she is the young woman who's in question. Yeah, let's go back and, and just to introduce the listeners to who Evelyn was and kind of how she wound up in New York on the chorus line. Yes, she came from Pittsburgh originally, and her father died. Her father was a lawyer in Pittsburgh, well-to-do, middle-class, making a good living, but then he suddenly died when Evelyn was, I think, about eight or 10 years old. The mother had no education, no profession, and, and, sent, and the family was really left destitute. And the only thing they had was, in fact, Evelyn's beauty. She was a very attractive child. And first, the family moved from Pittsburgh. Again, think about Pittsburgh at that time as a very small town. Mm -hmm. And the big places in American society are the East Coast cities, Philadelphia. And so the family moved to Philadelphia first. The mother got a job in a Wanamaker's store. And then when Evelyn's beauty, she was probably about 14 when they were in Philadelphia. And then her beauty became so striking that people suggested that she become a model. And they moved to New York City to really take advantage of that. And from the moment that they lived in New York, they got artists wanting to use Evelyn, who is now about 15 years old, about almost 16. And she was being used as a model for painters, for sculptors. And her photographs started appearing in the newspapers, not because she was anything well known, but simply because of her, her looks. And, and once her photograph appeared in the newspapers, then theatrical producers became interested in her and she got a place in the chorus line of Floradora. Now, she was not, it's a big mistake that people say that she was in the main singing group. There was a, a sextet who were supposedly the six most attractive, the six most attractive women in New York City. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how you would judge that, but that's what everybody said. Evelyn was never in that six group. She was always part of the chorus. But again, you know, she's on the stage as part of the chorus and people see her as being very attractive. And Stanford White, the architect, even though she's still 16, he wants an introduction, and he gets an introduction through one of the women in the sextet, Edna Goodrich, who introduces Evelyn to Stanford White. 
And then he starts to, because it's really kind of bizarre, he kind of ingratiates himself to the family and makes himself so that they're dependent financially on him. Exactly. And uh, my reading of it is that he does that quite deliberately. Although, of course, there's a twist to this story that we'll probably get to later. But uh, according to Evelyn's testimony, he ingratiates himself with the family. And then when Evelyn's mother is returning to Pittsburgh for a short visit to see friends, uh, Stanford White volunteers to guard Evelyn because she's only 16, you know, in the big city alone. Mm -hmm. He volunteers to guard her. And during the time that he guards her, he then, uh, first of all, gets her into a photographic studio where there are photographs taken of her posing in various costumes. And then one evening he invites her to a party at his apartment in, in the house on 24th Street. And she goes there and late after the evening performance of Floridora, and she finds that Stanford White is alone there's no party. And then according to her testimony, he drugs her with wine or a glass of champagne. It's not quite clear which. And then he rapes her in the bedroom of his house in 24th Street. Stanford White had these pretty wild parties and there was some scandal related to these parties that it, can you describe that she wasn't the only she course. was not she the wasn't only the only chorus girl young white. young woman that he was. he was kind of known for this it's difficult to say i have to say it's a little difficult to reach a final conclusion about that and part of the reason is because of course all of this behavior is if it happened it's very hidden right the penalty for rape at the time was 20 years in state prison so if you were prosecuted and you were convicted, then Stanford White was going to end up in Sing Sing Prison, which at that time was the most incredibly brutal place. You did not want to go there. And so all of this behavior, if it happens, was very, very hidden. And we really wouldn't know about it unless it was Evelyn getting up on the witness stand much later and testifying about it. The only other reference I've had that is valid reference was in the autobiography of one of his friends where he describes these scenes where Stanford White was with young girls. These young girls would be either naked or close to naked, and they would be on swing, swinging back and forth, swinging as though they were to swing into the lap of Stanford White and his friends. There is one other episode that was reported in the press, and this was in 1895. And this happened in the New York world, which is a very famous scene where Stanford White and all of his friends had this huge dinner and then at 12 o'clock midnight, the waiters brought in this huge pie. And out of this pie, there was this very young girl popped out who was practically naked. And this was a scandal at the time because this young girl, Susan Johnson, disappeared shortly afterwards. Mm -hmm. Her parents were very upset and couldn't find her. But nobody knew what happened to her. And I never did, never did find out if she was eventually found or if she simply disappeared. So the evidence says, yes, Stanford White was very predatory in that sense, going after young girls. But of course, you know, we're looking at this from the vantage of 120 years ago. So you can't ever be 100% sure. Can I just ask you a hypothetical question? I mean, would he have been viewed because of the age, would he have been viewed as kind of a Jeffrey Epstein? Or was that kind of a more acceptable thing that a woman that young 
a girl really that young, it would have been viewed the same way as a 22-year-old chorus girl, let's say. It's a very interesting question. There's a shocking fact about New York State, which is regards the age of consent. Until about 1886, the age of consent in New York State was 10 years old. Oh, wow. God. Yeah. And then women's groups began campaigning to raise the age of consent. And it was first raised to 16. And then I think around 1900, they kept campaigning and the legislature, which was all male, of course, at the time, the legislature did raise the age of consent to 80. And it also tightened up the laws regarding rape. And the law regarding rape before about 1890 had been very much on the side of the predator in the sense that the woman had to demonstrate that she had actually fought back, that she had resisted violently to the greatest possible extent. That's a very difficult thing to prove. In fact, it's almost impossible to prove. By the time this case happens in 1906, that was no longer necessary. So in fact, merely having intercourse with someone under the age of 18 was defined automatically as rape. All right. So just the fact that he had had, whether or not it was consensual between Stanford White and Evelyn, which it doesn't seem that it was, but simply the fact that he had sex with her would have constituted rape. Like statutory rape, essentially. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you would have had a penalty, as I said, of 20 years in the state prison. So she kind of comes to from this rape or this experience, and she's kind of trapped because she's being supported financially by Stanford White. And not just her, she's kind of been parentified in her family where she's taking care of her mother and brother. Absolutely. And I think one of the things when we think of in 2020 about safety net, there is, we have safety nets. You know, I mean, there's unemployment insurance, there's disability payments, all of that exists. None of that existed. And so when you think about it, if she loses her financial position, then that's it. I mean, she has no education. The mother has no education. The daughter has no education. They have no profession. What are they going to do? And one of the things about New York at the time was that prostitution was very, very widespread. Prostitution was everywhere, and it was very open, and it was very common. And there was a great deal of anxiety about this among middle-class reformers, but there was kind of inevitability about it because you could not earn a good living, even if you had a job as a young woman. And so prostitution was seen as somehow a last resort that many, many women did. And I, I think that's hard to understand for a lot of people reading that today because well, why didn't she do something? Why didn't she tell somebody? But in reading the book, you really understand how she really had so few choices. Right. She had the responsibility. Stanford White was paying for her brother's education at that point, correct? And, yeah, and right. her mother. So this is all resting on her shoulders that if she makes any type of disruption, all of that goes away. And he had moved them into a hotel, basically, right? Was it a hotel? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was a hotel they were staying at. I can't remember the name of that hotel, but I think you're right. So Evelyn just kind of decides she has no option but to just kind of move forward, correct? Right. And I think understanding her financial, the precarious nature of her financial situation then explains why she would marry Harry Thor, who is a millionaire, very eccentric, but uh, from a very wealthy family. And she meets Harry Thor uh, not long after she has been with Stanford White. And so she gets into sort of friendship, relationship uh, with him. And then I think it's 1903, 
So the rape happens in 1901, if I'm correct. And then in 1903, she marries Harry Thaw. Which I, I found interesting that she married Harry Thaw, which seemed to be primarily for financial reasons. Because can we talk a little about Harry Thaw and his background a little? Because we found our Ivy League connection to this. It's Harry Thaw because Harry he did, Thaw, he did go know. to Harvard for two years. But then he got kicked out. Is that correct? The president of Harvard, Charles Elliott, yeah. personally told Harry Thaw to get out. Get out. <laughs> Why was that because of his carousing? That was usually the reason, right? Uh, I think it was, again, it's kind of hidden, but I think something happened with a young boy, Harry Thorne, a young boy that wasn't brought out publicly, but that probably was the decided because, you know, a lot of Harvard students would do a lot of carousing. So that wouldn't have marked out Harry Thor, but the way it happened that Charles Elliott, who's the president of the university, personally says to Harry Thor, you're out. (laughs) Well, this is, I mean, it's very hard to get kicked out of Harvard. And um, coming from Cambridge, it's kind of a joke that you can't get kicked out of Harvard. The hardest part is getting in, they say. So to see that he was kicked out of Harvard, especially at that time period, especially because he got in under connections. If you can explain Harry Thaw a little bit, what I found was interesting was they had a fortune, but they were essentially new money. Is that right? They had made their money from the father of the family had uh, purchased uh, land in Western Pennsylvania many, many years before where the value of the land wasn't obvious, but the land, in fact, was full of coal, coal deposits. The Industrial Revolution is beginning in the United States after the Civil War, and that land suddenly becomes enormously valuable. And then the father invests in the Pennsylvania Railroad. Well, the Pennsylvania Railroad in the late 19th century was like the equivalent of what's Facebook. It was like the 19th century. Google, you know, being on the ground floor of Google or something like that. If you invested in Pennsylvania Railroad, you were going to make millions and millions of dollars because it became this huge corporation, you know, very powerful corporation. So it was very difficult to find out how much the Thor family was worth because they kept it very secret. But it must have been at least $40 million. So again, that's 1906 money. So you're talking about half a billion, $500 million in our money, at least. The thing was, there were five children from the second marriage and five children from the first marriage. Mm -hmm. So that fortune was divided up among 10 children. But nevertheless, Harry Thor ended up getting $80,000 a year as an allowance. So... And even though he was so wealthy, I mean, it seems like he never really fit in in life, like growing up at school, at university. He never really, he was always kind of an odd guy out. Yes, his behavior as school teachers testified later is very, very eccentric. He was a very disruptive child, even when he was very, very young, even when he was seven or eight years old. He then, I guess about 18 or 17 or 18, he went to Worcester College, which Mm. is in eastern Ohio. It's not far from the Pennsylvania border. And the reason he went there is because his mother was Presbyterian, and that was a Presbyterian college. And so he goes to Worcester College, but drops out. He's thrown out of Worcester College. He then goes closer to home to the Western University of Pennsylvania, which is now the University of Pittsburgh. He gets thrown out of Pitt and then ends up at Harvard and he's thrown out of Harvard. So I love that Harvard's the third choice. Yeah, we've thing. never seen you that before. <laughs> it was his third No school. one else would take him. Yeah. I, when I give a talk about this, I always say, and then he goes to his safety school, which is... <laughs> 
It's funny when I read it, I almost thought I read it wrong at first. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you would think it would be the reverse order than it is. But once he got thrown out of Harvard, he kind of realized, well, what do I need a college education for anyway? What's the point? You know, I'm not going to study. I don't need a degree because I have this, you know, all this money. And what he did then was spend time in New York. Okay. But then he would also spend several months every year traveling in Europe just going around. In Europe at the time, there were expatriate communities of Americans pretty much everywhere in the big cities. And he would always connect up with them. If you were wealthy, you were automatically accepted into these expatriate communities. So if he was in Paris, he would connect with the Americans. If he was in Rome, he would connect with the Americans. And all of these people, of course, I mean, you couldn't live overseas unless you were very wealthy in those days. And so they would kind of welcome him as another wealthy uh, American. So, But then he kind of gravitated to New York City and he applied to be a member of the clubs, but he could never join because he was always blackballed. One of the things that you don't kind of realize now in 2020 about that time is that, of course, most New Yorkers, even wealthy New Yorkers, never really traveled. It was a big deal to go to Europe. You had to get on a boat and you had to be on the boat for like 10 days, right? Mm -hmm. So we couldn't do that on a casual thing. Right. People didn't really travel much outside New York. If they did, even the wealthy people, if they did, it would like be once a year, right? The other thing about New York at the time is that if you were wealthy, the area that you would frequent was mm -hmm. very small. You would never go above 42nd Street and you'd never really want to go to 42nd Street because the theaters had not yet moved up there but you would never go north of 42nd Street unless you were taking your carriage into Central Park to go on a ride. You would never go below 14th Street because that was a tremendous slum. And the only reason you would ever go down there is if you were going to Wall Street. And you would never go east or you would never go west because those were the docks and they were also very, very dangerous. So the thing is that after Harry got married to Evelyn, Evelyn tells Harry about the rape and then Harry is always kind of seeing Stanford White. They're all, they go to the same restaurants. There are certain restaurants that the wealthy go to, Delmonico's, Cafe Martin, and they're kind of always bumping into each other. So it's not like they could just be separate and go their separate ways. And Harry gets to be increasingly obsessed with the thought that Stanford White had raped his wife. He was obsessed with Stanford White even before he knew that, wasn't he? Like he thought Stanford White was blackballing him from the clubs and ruining his reputation. And it was there truth to that, or was he not really even on Stanford White's radar, do you think? I think Stanford White would have regarded Harry Thor as a kind of a nuisance, you know, right. someone who is just a not, not very substantial individual who had no real accomplishments to his name. And I don't really know. I mean, Harry Thor, of course, always represented his animosity towards Stanford White as resulting from the rape. Uh, whether or not Stanford White blackballed him, that was a rumor, certainly. But again, you know, how would you ever find that out? Right. That's not something that would be advertised. And it wasn't really a true love triangle, my reading of it, because Stanford White had lost interest in Evelyn Nesbitt a long time ago, romantically. Is that correct? I'm not even sure there really was much going on romantically. You know, I think that he connected with her. He liked seeing her around, as he did with a lot of young women. But I think it faded very quickly. I think the thing that does come across 
which she kind of blurted out inadvertently much later is that she regarded Stanford White as a very generous, nice person, you know, someone who was considerate, who was thoughtful. And one of the best evidences of this, in fact, is that though the rape occurs in 1901, in 1903, Evelyn is going with Harry and with Evelyn's mother to France. And Stanford White says, you must be out of your mind. Don't do that because you can't trust Harry Thor. He's a lunatic, right? And if you go off to France with Harry Thor and he just dumps you or he treats you badly, what are you going to do? So right at the last minute, as Evelyn's mother is about to get on the boat, Harris Stanford White is there at the docks and he slips her this letter of credit for $500, which is $5,000 in our money, maybe even more. And that, again, is a very thoughtful, generous thing to do. He didn't have to do that. But there he is going down to the dock to give this money to the mother of a girl that he had known well two years before. So Evelyn always had a very high opinion of Stanford White, apart from the fact that the rape occurred. I mean, it's, a, it's an odd thing to say, but that's it comes across much later. I went into this thinking it was kind of a love triangle, and you really do dispel that whole myth. Yeah, and one of the things that just got to be very irritating when I read other historians or writers on this case was their characterization of this as a seduction. Yes. <laughs> and this was so crazy. How could you possibly call this a seduction? You know, he drugged her and then raped her while she was unconscious. That seems to me the most grotesque violation of someone you can possibly imagine. And there simply wasn't that because the word seduction implies kind of something at least a little bit consensual, all right? There was nothing about that with her. She was very young. She was 16. The other thing that I found extremely irritating and annoying was the way that some people blamed Evelyn for what had happened, all right? Which, again, is so ludicrous. You know, she's 16 years old. Imagine what it's like to be 16 years old. Stanford White is 47, and wow. Harry Thor is 31, you know, it's like, it was just absurd. I mean, he's as famous as a celebrity would be today, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. A celebrity of his day. Yeah. Yes, very much so. I mean, someone, and here's the other thing about Stanford White, because if you go to some parts of New York, that you have these row houses, brownstone row houses, all right? They're all on the Upper West Side, they're here in Brooklyn. Now, you've got to think of New York City as just having those brown row houses, nothing else. It had no big buildings. There was nothing to distinguish it architecturally. What Stanford White does is he comes and says, he doesn't say this explicitly, but he builds these wonderful buildings. And now New York City can begin to be not only the capital of the United States through its architecture, which is a kind of symbol of its prosperity, but it can begin to be a rival of European cities, of London, of Paris, of Berlin. And so Stanford White's architecture really began to transform New York City. So I think the thing that we don't really appreciate Stanford White sufficiently for as an architect is the way he changes the architecture of New York City. That before Stanford White, the architecture is very bland, it's very uniform. It's all brownstone houses. There are no big buildings. There are no significant buildings. And so New York City, it becomes a very wealthy place, and it's comparing itself to London or to Paris, but the comparison is very remote. It's not really real because it has no grand buildings in the way that London or Paris or Berlin have. 
And in fact, Madison Square Garden is a very good example of that because before the garden was built, there was really no grand auditorium where you can have big audiences. There was nothing there. And so this was a signal, this architecture of Stanford White was really like a coming out of New York City as a great international city. That's and so interesting. But there was also a lot of money there at the time, right? Because there's new steel money. There's all these sort of JP Morgan types, right? The money to do this and Stanford White was able to, you know, kind of ride that wave as well, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the money is enormous and it's all concentrated in New York. When you think of the people whose names we recognize, where do they come from? They come from somewhere else. Frick is from Western Pennsylvania, makes his money in steel. Why does he end up in New York? Because New York is the exciting place to be. If you wanted to choose between Pittsburgh and New York City in 1900, you'd say New York. I'm not staying in Pittsburgh. There's nothing to do. Right, right. Rockefeller is not a native New Yorker. He comes from, I think he's from Pennsylvania again, but they moved to New York City. Mellon, right? He also moved to New York. Carnegie, all of these people, they make their fortunes somewhere else, but they bring their money to New York City. Mm-hmm. And New York City becomes the banking center. It becomes an industrial hub of itself. It just becomes enormously important. And, and again, that's not guaranteed because 100 years before, in 1800, what was the biggest city in the United States? It was Philadelphia, all right? Philadelphia, Boston, New York, they were all pretty much the same size, but New York becomes the metropolis. It becomes the essential capital of of the United States. It seems like Stanford White, too, was this kind of larger-than-life character, too. He's sort of incredibly generous, lived beyond his means, super ambitious. He seems like the right guy for that at that time. Bring us a little bit to Harry Thaw and his increasing obsession about Stanford White. What happens at that point? Well, Thor becomes increasingly obsessed with White. And it really builds to a climax one evening when they end up by coincidence at the same theatrical performance actually on the roof of Madison Square Garden. In those days, there were a lot of rooftop theaters everywhere around the city. And on warm summer nights, the audience would be out in the outside on a rooftop. And the reason you could do that, of course, is because there was no traffic noise. I didn't even think of that when I read that. That's fascinating. (laughs) I (laughs) I thought it was great. You could never have that now because... Right, you couldn't. Street noise would be far too loud. How would you hear the play? Okay, so it must have been a wonderful scene on Madison Square Garden because you have the flat roof. And then you have the tower right above it, which is illuminated at night. And it must have been wonderful to be out there on a summer evening watching a theatrical performance. But by chance, Danford White is, it's a premiere of this play, musical comedy called Mademoiselle Champagne. Stanford White is sitting at the front in his customary seat because he's really like the big cheese with Madison Square Garden. He designed the place. So he's sitting at the front and Harry Thor comes in with his now wife, Evelyn, and two friends. And it's a terrible play. Nobody likes it. Evelyn and Harry decide to leave early as they're walking towards the elevator. In fact, Harry breaks away and starts walking towards the front of the theater. And everyone looks behind her and sees the shooting 
of Stanford White and Harry Thor stands in front of Stanford White. Stanford White is still seated and Harry Thor fires three bullets from his gun and holds the gun above his head. <laughs> and so to indicate to everyone, of course, this is taking place before like 200 people. Amazing. So then he holds the gun above his head, presumably to show he's not going to do anyone else any harm, and then starts walking back towards the rear of the theater. And he's taken into custody and he's taken down to the police station and he spends the night in the police station and the judicial process then gets the wheels start going into motion. And this gets pretty interesting to me. One thing it's funny to me, there's even pictures of him eating at the jail because he's treated completely differently than any other prisoner. I mean, unlike today, back then. I think, then, doesn't he have like Delmonico's? He has Delmonico's delivered. delivered. <laughs> but Thaw's attitude was really like, I've done the world a favor by taking Stanford White out. Yes, and his defense strategy, which was not uncommon at the time, particularly in the Southern states, was to say, look, I've justified this man raped my wife, therefore I'm justified in killing him. And there were many people, in, particularly in the southern states, who were acquitted on that basis. They would come in and they would make an appeal to the jury and they would say, look, so-and-so raped my wife or assaulted my wife, and the jury would acquit them. And then what do you do? I mean, obviously there's no law that says, well, if, if someone rapes your wife, you can go after them and kill them. Do you know, though, in Anglo-Saxon law, it was punishable by death because women were looked at like chattel, like property. So it's one of those things that maybe got carried forward into our legal system or at least customs. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I certainly think that would be true. I think the difference, though, is that you can't exact your own punishment. I mean, I can't go in and kill someone mm -hmm. just because they've insulted me or done me harm. I think that's the difference. But then Harry Thor is coming in and his defense is I was justified in doing it. And so then it becomes really interesting because of course, if he comes in and says, well, it's justified in doing it, well, where's the evidence, all right? Where's the evidence that it even happened? And the only person who can testify is Evelyn Nesbitt, right? So she comes in and she's the witness and all the testimony depends, everything depends upon her and whether or not she's telling the truth. And the jury is listening to what she's saying there are essentially, in the first trial, there are essentially no other witnesses that count, and the jury is just listening to her testimony. Then the district attorney, who is probably one of the smartest district attorneys in the whole history of New York City, but he wants to get Harry Thor into the electric chair, and he begins to cross-examine her. And one of the things he does is he shows, he tries to puncture her claim that she was raped. And one of the ways he does that is by saying, look, you were raped, but then after you were raped, you kept on communicating with Stafford White. You went up to his apartment and you were alone with Stafford White several times after the rape. And you're saying the rape was so terrible, why did you continue to see Stafford White? And then he finds the bank accounts and he says, well, look, you were raped, but you were accepting money from Stanford White. Why were you accepting these weekly checks, all right? And then the thing that really puts a huge question mark over the whole episode, which I try to introduce in a way that gives credence both to Evelyn and her account, but also raises the question mark, is when the district attorney says, well, you were raped, all right? Tell me what the weather was like. What yeah. was it? Was it raining? 
what day was it? And she can't, she won't tell the day. Okay, then what month was it? And she won't tell the month, all right? And then he makes the point, look, if you're raped, you're not going to forget that, right? You're not going to forget when it happened. And why can't you tell us the day when it happened? And he claims afterwards to the press, he talks to the newspaper reporters and he says, well, if I was allowed to bring in the evidence, I could prove that she's lying because I could prove an alibi for Stanford White, that in fact, the date that the district attorney figures her claim happened when the rape happened was the 5th of November. That was the election night. And the district attorney wants to go into court and say Stanford White was with friends waiting for the election results. All right. So am I answering your question? Yeah, what's interesting to me is it's almost like there's two trials in one. There's really kind of the trial. Stanford White is kind of being defended by the prosecutor. But sort of yeah. saying like, well, his he, reputation goes on repu trial. You know, yeah. sort of like he didn't rape her. Let's discredit Evelyn Nesbitt. And so it's this complicated trial within a trial, it almost seems like. Yes, and it does throw a huge question mark. I mean, I didn't want to be writing a book that would say, no, Evelyn is lying, right? I didn't want to say, no, it's false, her account, because I can't say that. I'm 120 years away from what happened. I can only, I only have a certain amount of evidence that I can sift and then produce that evidence, what I can produce. There are arguments to say, yes, she is telling the truth, but there's also some evidence that says, well, there's a question mark over it. The argument that, yes, she is telling the truth, which is very impressive to me, is that the first trial happens in 1906. The second trial, where well, the first trial was a mistrial, the jury couldn't decide. The second trial then happens the next year. And again, Evelyn comes onto the witness stand and she repeats exactly the same story, every single detail. Is repeated. That's very difficult to do if you're lying. I mean, right. to tell exactly the same story 12 months later. Okay. But again, the thing is that why couldn't she have produced the date? And that's a question mark. The other question mark is that, in fact, before the murder happened, Harry Thor hired a private detective who is very well known in New York and is well known to historians to spy on Stanford White and to see if he was raping other young girls, because that was the rumor. Now, the private detective does everything he can to find evidence for his client, who's Harry Thor, but he comes back and says, no, I couldn't find anything. There was nothing going on, all right? So that, again, is another question mark raised over this whole episode. But wouldn't you say there's, there's no doubt that Harry Thor believed it? Oh, yes. yes. So whether or not he completely believed it when he made the decision to shoot him. Absolutely. And she was a very, very good witness. She's only 21. She's facing the most accomplished and skillful and cunning and clever prosecutor ever seen, who's just so smart. And yet she's such an accomplished witness who is so persuasive. And the jury, although it's a hung jury, they really think that she was a very, very good witness. I found the attorneys very impressive. I mean, even looking, you know, 120 years from it, but the law kind of still holds up. I mean, when you read these old cases, it was pretty impressive, the arguments made on both sides. True, but I still think if you've said in another interview, you view Evelyn Nesbitt as sort of the true victim in this case, I feel like 
it's sort of unfair. It goes back to that whole idea of what was Evelyn Nesbitt's financial reality at that point. So even if she had been raped by Stanford White, she had no really other recourse other than to accept lunches with him and stay in contact with him. And that was her financial reality in some ways, would you say? Oh, yes, very dependent. And in fact, you know, we would criticize Stanford White, and it's a valid criticism. What is someone that a middle-aged man doing with a 16-year-old girl? He's not with her for intellectual right. enjoyment. You know, I mean, I'm not putting anybody down or saying anything pejorative, but a middle-aged man doesn't have a great deal of common with a 16-year-old girl, you know, especially someone like Stanford White, who has so many friends, who is so accomplished, who knows writers, artists, you know, all these people in New York society, what is he doing with a 16-year-old? That's not a commendable thing to do. Did we mention that he is, Stanford White's married and he keeps his, yes. his, his wife and his child out on Long Island, right? So kind of away from his day-to-day life. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he's married and he goes off to Long Island from time to time. But of course, see that again, that's a very negative aspect that is causing his wife a great deal of grief Mm -hmm. and a very unpleasant thing to do to the person you're married to, to treat them in that way. So after the Hong trial, we go into the second trial. And so the second trial happens a year after the first trial. Right. And this becomes really more about his sanity and his, his mental health. Yeah, the first trial, they tried to say the murder was justified, but that didn't work. All right, the jury, mm-hmm. the hung jury. Now, the lawyer comes in, it's a different lawyer, but he comes in and says, look, the kind of um, impact you've had, it's not going to have the same impact on the second trial, and you're probably not going to win a second time. So why don't we go with the insanity? You mean Nesbitt's testimony is not going to be as well, powerful. Or, or everything altogether. Everything altogether. Because it's already yeah. been in the papers, right? Everybody knows every detail. So nothing shocking happening. Everybody has read this already. You know, going to have another jury coming in with the same, listening to the same argument. It's not going to have the same impact. And if it hasn't worked the first time, it's really dodgy that it's going to work a second time. And so it's much better to say, look, Harry Thor was insane when he fired those bullets. And the thing they're calculating on is that Harry Thor will be judged insane. Therefore, there'll be no real punishment. He'll end up in an asylum. They'll wait a couple of years and then they'll get him out of the asylum. And then he can go back and live his life so long as he keeps a low profile, (laughs) which which is... (laughs) There, therein lies the problem. Right. Yeah. Difficult for Harry Thor to have a low profile, but and they give all this testimony about him growing up and his his mood swings and, and I mean, so then it's amazing to me when I read all this what it must have been like a hundred years ago for these people to have their lives put out in the paper this way. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was in in some way it was devastating for them. You know, the wife of Stanford White, of course, it was devastating for all this stuff to come out. And I think the impact was would have been far greater then than it would be in 2020, because now that, you know, you turn on the television, it's one scandal after another, and nobody ever seems to worry that they've been dragged through the mud or that they're on Facebook or whatever. But in those days, it was a lot different, you know. And so this had a huge impact. But uh, Harry Thor is declared insane by the court. They want to get him into a private sanitarium. 
where he'll be looked after and he can do whatever he wants to do. What they don't anticipate is that he gets sent to the Matawan Asylum, which is for the criminal insane. And of course, that's not where Harry Thor wants to end up. So, With actually criminally insane people. Right. Which is what she winds up with, right? As roommates. Exactly. Everybody there is criminally insane. That's not where you want to be. (laughs) Would Sing Sing have been better? That's the question, I guess. No, no, it would not have been better. Sing Sing was the most brutal place. I mean, I've been reading about Sing Sing and the the internal regime. I was actually very surprised that Sing Sing still exists as a prison. I mean, Mm -hmm. I can't believe that it still is a prison 100 years on. It's one of the oldest prisons in the United States. So, But yeah, so he ends up in Madawan. It's a very unpleasant place, but Harry Thor is, is does what he can. But what then becomes so strange is the way the family on the outside is determined to get him out, all right? And they just use every single trick to somehow get him out of the asylum. And even things that I never mentioned in the book, I mean, like one trick they tried was that, they would de- that Harry Thor would declare bankruptcy. Well, how would that get him out? The reason it would get him out is because then he would have to go to bankruptcy court in Pennsylvania. And the moment he crossed the state line, he would be free because they would, he'd never be extradited back to New York State. So the main thing they did was they smuggled somebody in as a spy. This is the Thor family. Got someone into the asylum as a spy who was perfectly sane. And this spy was recording everything that was going on in the asylum to mm-hmm. then accumulate enough evidence to get rid of the superintendent. The asylum is a state institution, so the legislature has oversight over the asylum. And so much bad stuff was coming coming out in the press about what was going on in the asylum that, in fact, the superintendent was removed from his position. And what that meant was that there would be a superintendent who would then certify that Thor had regained his sanity. That's all it needed was for the superintendent to, to sign the certificate and say Harry is now sane and he would be free. But they couldn't get anyone. I was going to say, that's not quite what happens, though, is it? (laughs) So they couldn't get anyone to do that. And then eventually he escaped. He got out of the asylum one morning and escaped up to Canada. So... Yeah, I and thought then that was sort of he a, had a limousine waiting for him, didn't he? When you yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> the back entrance of the asylum. So he gets up to Canada. He's a celebrity. He's well known. I mean, he's like all the time his name is in the newspapers, and he presents a huge problem for Canada because Canada has just passed immigration legislation. They've restricted immigration, and one of the terms of the legislation is that anyone who's been insane in the previous three years is denied entry to the United States. Well, Harry Thor is now in Canada. All of his lawyers take the train and they go up to Canada and they start fighting. They know the Canadian government knows that Thor's lawyers and Thor has an infinite amount of money and he has a whole battalion of lawyers and the Canadian government knows that they can fight deportation in the courts and that this can tie up the Canadian courts for years and years and years. Super expensive, too. Yeah. So that's the last. And they don't want his case to somehow question the legislation that has recently been passed. This legislation by Canada is actually directed towards Japanese who are coming into Canada on the West Coast. It's aimed against them. So what they do is Harry Thor is in a small town called Sherbrooke. 
And then one morning, the immigration police break into his bedroom. They grab him, they put him in a car, and they drive him across the border back to the United States, and they kick him out of the car. <laughs> and, uh, I wouldn't even believe that. Like, if I saw it, it doesn't even sound true. I mean, I know it's true, but it's so crazy. Yeah, it's it's strange actually to go up there. I went up there. I was in Sherbrooke for a couple of weeks just to do research. And it was strange. I was in Canada. And then I thought, why don't I go on down to the border and see what the border is like? And you can't really expect what the border with Canada in that kind of remote part of Quebec is like because it's total country. You know, there's no building in sight. And there's a single road that leads out of Canada to the United States. And all you have is one person, just one immigration official, who's the Canadian person. So what did I do? There was a Canadian person and there's the United States person uh, about 50 yards down the road. So I actually drove around the Canadian post and then chatted with a Canadian person. He said, can you show me your passport? I hadn't left Canada, but he wanted to to make sure that I was okay, that I wasn't some suspicious <laughs> person. And so I showed him my passport. I chatted with him for a bit, and it seemed like a very lonely job. You know, you're just stuck there in the middle of nowhere. But the thing about the border in those days was that it was not guarded. I mean, it's not really guarded very much now, but it was just completely unguarded. And so you could just drive back and forth between Canada and the United States with no problem whatsoever. So they drove him across the border. They kicked him out and said, don't come back into Canada. And so there he is left in the middle of the road, but he knows that the New York State people are looking for him. And if they get him and they grab him, they're going to rush him back to New York as quickly as they can. So he has to get out of there. You know, he has to do what he can do. And also the press, the newspaper reporters are looking for him because they know that he's being thrown out of Canada and they're all waiting to get him to come back. And eventually he's picked up by a newspaper reporter. He's eventually taken into custody and then begins the fight to avoid extradition back to New York State. Does he wind up in New Hampshire? I think he was in New Hampshire. And then he fights extradition back to New York State. And then that comes to the United States Supreme Court because the court has to decide, well, okay, so if one state wants to extradite a person from another state, what are the grounds for doing that? I mean, if the governor of New York State on a whim woke up one morning and said, I want to extradite so-and-so, is that the basis for extradition on a whim, on someone's whim? And so the Supreme Court was having to decide on what basis can someone be extradited from one state to another. And they did eventually extradite Thor back to New York State. But then the problem was it gets so complicated because New York State in the extradition request, someone has to have committed an offense. They have to have done something wrong for there to be extradition. So they came up with the idea that Thor was guilty of the crime of conspiring to leave the asylum. So when he came back to New York State, he had to be put on trial for conspiring to leave the asylum. (laughs) And the jury then in that trial says, no, he's not guilty. And the judge releases him and says, you're free to go. And then he has, he's free and it's all over. Because it's a total catch-22, right? If he's insane, he can't conspire, right? I mean, that's that's the... Exactly. But New York State had to come up with something. And that was the best they could do. You know, he didn't assault anybody. He didn't bribe anyone to get out of the asylum. The only thing they could come up with was conspiracy 
to escape. It's interesting because it seems like this obsession with Stanford White and keeping Evelyn, and then it just seems like after the shooting, he kind of forgets about Evelyn. Yeah, I mean, they go separate paths. I mean, the falling out was pretty soon after he ends up in the asylum because, you know, she's in Manhattan. He wants her to move up to Fishkill, the little village near the asylum is called Fishkill. But she has no intention of moving to Fishkill. <laughs> Don't blame her. <laughs> what is she going to do at Fishkill? You know, the only thing she has to do is go and visit her husband at the asylum. So she says no. So, of course, the newspapers are still reporting everything she does, and they're eager for gossip and salacious gossip. So they keep reporting on how Evelyn was seen out uh, that this one evening with a young man going to the theater, and then another evening she's seen with another young man, and Harry Thor is going crazy. He's going, he actually is going insane because <laughs> he's reading about his wife having this wonderful time in Manhattan. And so they really fall out very quickly after he gets into the asylum. And, and after that, they separate, they get divorced, I think, in 1913. What happens to Thal? Once he's released, from time to time, he appears in the newspapers, but has a very short one paragraph. Harry Thor did this, but it was very, he really kind of disappears. And he kind of, because he has so much money, he can buy these places around the world and he has houses everywhere and he travels a lot. He dies, I think, in the 1940s and leaves his will uh, like a million dollars, but only leaves Evelyn $10,000 in his will. And she goes into vaudeville. She's a big success, actually, uh, in vaudeville in the 19-teens. And then vaudeville begins. Vaudeville is where you... Um, a lot of people don't really know what vaudeville is. What it was was a kind of short appearances by a lot of different actors. You'd have an acrobat, and then you'd have a gymnast, or you'd have a song and dance man. And this would be five or ten minute sketches, and the audience would come in and see these sketches. And she was a vaudeville act as a dancer, but mostly because of her celebrity. You know, people wanted to come and see Evelyn Nesbitt on the stage. So she made a living doing that. And then the silent movies came along around 1912, 1913, 1914. And she played in several silent movies until about 1920. And then she became addicted to morphine, I think cocaine as well. And she spent time out in Hollywood but she dealt with the drug habit for three years. She was addicted for three years. All of her money disappeared because of the drug addiction. She eventually conquered it and then moved back to New York and ran a tea room on West 57th Street. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1920s, she ended up in Atlantic City. As a Atlantic City in those days was a great place to be. It was a real place where you would go for your holidays. Now it's just it's awful. I've been there one time. and It is awful, isn't it? I, I can't really picture you in Atlantic City, Simon, frankly. I, when I lived in New York City, I just had to go to see it, and it was very disappointing. Yeah, it's, awful. <laughs> it's awful. It's terrible. And once you go past the casinos, so there's like a facade of the casinos. It's sad, yeah. And the beach. But once you go past, back behind the casinos, nobody's there. It's completely mm -hmm. empty. You know, there's just no town to speak of. But in those days, Atlantic City was the place to be. It was where everybody went on holiday. So she made a living in the 1920s as a hostess, as a singer, 
Then in the 1930s, her career as a singer began to wind down. But luckily, she had had a son who became a test pilot. He got married, had three children. They moved to California. And then Evelyn went to live in California with her son and lived out the rest of her days doing our art and, you know, seeing the family, seeing the children and died, I think, in not sure, 1967. I, I don't know. Wow, long life. You know, we have the Boston Public Library here designed by Stanford White, right. which is really very amazing. It's such a great piece of architecture. But and I, you know, I tell people sometimes about it's, a lot of people don't even know the story, but I wonder what you think it does to Stanford White's legacy. It's a very interesting question. And I think it's linked to why so many people characterized the rape as a seduction. And I think part of it is that after, in the 1930s, people began to really discover his architecture as so valuable. And people began to write about him. Now, if you want to really praise him as an architect, it becomes very inconvenient that he's raped this 16-year-old girl. And so all of these writers began to take use the word seduction whenever they described his relationship with Evelyn. I'm sorry, I forgot your question. I right, no, about his legacy. Instead of saying, I love his work, oh. but I, I hate what he did, they're kind of justifying it. I understand. I think the legacy still lives on. I mean, it's an incredibly accomplishment, that firm. There are just so many wonderful buildings. Penn Station, of course, was a fabulous building, but they really did add so much to New York City, and you can still see this in so many buildings. I'm I'm scheduled to give a talk at the University Club on, I'm, I think it's in the 50s, West 51st, mm -hmm. and they promised me that they, I'll get to see the inside of that building, and apparently it's just the most beautiful creation. Well, the Harvard Club was designed by, by oh. them as well. And I think for the longest time, it had the highest ceilings in New York City. Probably not now, but... I used to spend Easter at the Players Club for many years because I had a very dear friend who's since passed away, Ralph um, Odom, who my husband and I used to go to the Players Club a lot. So I've spent time in the Players Club and they have like Booth's room reserve, of, reserved. Of, of course you have, dear girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting. And I know he designed the Players Club. Right. And it was very interesting to me when I was reading all this, all the places he designed, much more than I, I was aware of. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just, the list goes on and on. And then Sarah and I were even talking, I mean, there's homes, we're going to do kind of do a little drive-by tour because there's homes here in Boston on Commonwealth. I mean, it's just vast. Commonwealth Ave is so beautiful. It looks like a street in Paris. It has like a little park in the middle and then a beautiful apartments on either side. And the firm at least designed some of those some apartments. Of, yeah. Oh yeah, there's a ton of stuff outside New York City as well. I mean, if you go to Newport, Oh. They designed a lot of stuff there. And also they've got, they started to get commissions way out in the West. So there's a lot of stuff everywhere around the United States. His legacy as an architect is very substantial, of course, and very enduring. And I think that, again, you know, it would be even more spectacular if so much of his stuff had been preserved. There are some things that pop up in the most unexpected places, like the Bowery Savings Bank on Grand Street is this just enormous building, you know, designed, and then so much money must have been poured into that bank building, and it just takes up half a block. And it's a wonderful building, and it's stuck in the middle of the Bowery, so not many people go to see it. My favorite building in New York City is the old police headquarters building. Do you know that building? Police headquarters. No. Which, where is it? It's on Center Street in Little Italy. 
It's, okay. a, it's a fabulous, fabulous building. It's the most beautiful building in New York City. It gets my vote. Uh, but you can't go in because it's condominiums. They're all like millions of dollars each. Leonardo DiCaprio has a condominium in that building. <laughs> oh my goodness, we'll have to check. Nobody we'll have to... sees it because it's stuck in the middle of the bar. It's stuck in Little Italy. So. Wow. Wow. I have to tell you, I mean, this is, I mean, I, we're kind of getting towards the end. So I have to bring up your other book because <laughs> we actually covered Leopold and Loeb early in our podcast. And your book was like our Bible. I, I mean, know. I, I think I read it like four times. I, I think we gave you credit on the, on our <laughs> podcast, but if we didn't, then we heavily relied on you, Simon, and we thank you so much. I that mean, book was amazing. You know, and your books really do read like novels. Yeah. I mean, I've read the book a few times by now, and I mean, but I, the first time I picked it up, I mean, I just read it. In and like and two the days. Ti the title of the Leopold and Loeb book is the the thrill of it. The thrill for the thrill of it, right? Yeah, the great thing about, you know, all of those quotes, both in the Stanford White Book and in the Leopold and Loeb book, they're all verbatim. None of those quotes are made up because they all came out in the testimony of the hearing of the trials. With Leopold and Loeb, what was great about that was that the, the transcript, which was 5,000 pages, that transcript still exists. And it was available to you. That's priceless, right? As a as a journalist, I'm sure. In the court, people are telling it under oath, so you can take it as the truth. So it's great when that happens. What's next? Maybe the Parkman Webster case for you? Can we get you to Boston? Do you know the Parkman Webster case? <laughs> like in the 1840s, a medical professor. Yeah, yes, exactly. That's a great one. We have some. It's a old yeah. Harvard case. Oh, we have so many good cases. Yeah, we have some we... good cases. Some good period piece cases. Fascinating, <laughs> absolutely fascinating. And I urge everybody to get both the books. I mean, yeah. I think they're both amazing, amazing. Absolutely, books. absolutely. Thank you, Thank and, you both for all your comments. It's it's very good when you put all that work into it. It's great to have someone give you that positive feedback. Thank you. I picked this book up and just went through it. I mean, I, I did too. I, it was just. Yep. I was mesmerized. I mean, I've read it a few times at this point. It's a fascinating case, and you wrote it so well. And thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, great. And if you have any other questions, anything else you want to ask me, don't hesitate to get in touch.